All right. Happy New Year to me, too. Thank you. I appreciate that. Glad everyone is back tonight. Matthew chapter 5 says this, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. <coughs> filled. And our focus tonight, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy is one of those words as I have sort of, I've had a few weeks to kind of meditate on this one since uh, it's been a few weeks since we were in Matthew 5 here together. And it's one of those words that proves a little difficult to define, I think, and feel like you're doing justice to it. It's also one of those words that I think just by natural response to the word produces a wide range of thoughts in us. I think if you went around the room and said, what do you think of when you hear the word mercy, you'd get a, a pretty diverse response. Uh, I confess that for me, as a man who grew up as a boy in a certain era, one of the first thing that pops into my mind always when I hear the word mercy um, and think about it for more than a couple of seconds is this clip from one of the greatest movies ever made. to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. Here on the street in competition, a man confronts you, he is the enemy. An enemy deserves no mercy. What is the problem, Mr. Lawrence? Hey, come on, let's forget this. Wait, not dear. Class, we have visitors. Fall in behind me. Ace! So what follows there is not a change of heart uh, on the nature of mercy. Um, I just wanted to leave a little bit of a cliffhanger if you've never seen that movie. So you'd be curious to see what comes next. <clears throat> and I wanted to continue it long enough, at least, that Mr. Miyagi got to speak there. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, we didn't have a VCR yet, and my cousin, uh, and my aunt and uncle and cousin who lived in Plannersville, uh, the big city where they had VCRs, apparently, had a VCR, and they had a copy of The Karate Kid, and I stayed two weeks with them in the summer of 1985, and I watched that movie 28 times in two weeks. <clears throat> I'm not kidding. Um, and that illustration of like what comes to my mind when I hear the word mercy may seem silly, uh, but I think a lot of men, at least, um, have their concept of mercy developed by ideas that are not too far removed from this, whether you ever stepped foot in a karate dojo or not. You probably were in certain settings where you heard messages like that. You were sort of trained and equipped to not be merciful, at least in certain contexts. It wasn't a quality that you were taught uh, you, was supposed to permeate who you are and come out 
wherever you meant you you went um, and regardless of of whether you're male or female or you had those messages or not, I think one or more of a few things have happened for a lot of us when it comes to this idea of mercy. That's sort of the most extreme notion that mercy becomes associated with weakness. I mean, that's what he says. Mercy is for the weak, right? Uh, and and the, I, I included that little uh, clip of the fight in front of it uh, because it's awesome and also because uh, it... it the, the guy wins the point, which in karate is supposed to be the end of combat, right? And he looks at the kid and says, you know, what are you waiting for? Finish him. Um, and so that idea that that has something to do with manhood or whatever in that, in that sense. But I think it has trickled down for a lot of us in, in certain moments, at least, that we feel like mercy uh, represents weakness, that it, it, it shows a weakness. And that's the most extreme But down from that, uh, we may see mercy as something that's good, but that is extraneous. It's sort of extra. Um, It's a good thing, but it's meant for certain times and certain peoples. It has a a time and a place, but we're not supposed to always be merciful, or maybe we're not all supposed to be merciful. Different ways that you might think about that. But nonetheless, you see mercy as sort of an add-on quality, not necessary for the cultivation of good character in everyone or part of the fabric, the nature of God's kingdom. Uh, We also may see it as good, and this is what I think is probably most common, is we see it as good, but our enacting of it, it carries with it a kind of sense of condescension. So when I think about being merciful, it's primarily in the context where for whatever reason I'm in a position of power or I'm the superior person in a situation and out of the goodness of my heart or whatever phrase you want to plug in there, for the person that is beneath me or lower than me, I choose to be nice to them. I think that's probably the most common kind of error that settles in for us on mercy. And we've even theologized kind of a sense of that with mercy, some of you who grew up in the church have heard this phrasing that mercy is not getting what you deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? It makes for a really nice, balanced sort of uh, statement. But that idea that that's a defi- that is the definition of mercy, that we can fully understand the range of mercy by thinking about the fact that, well, I just didn't get what I deserved, and that was mercy um, I, I think we, we can certainly make sense of that, and I think there's a truth in it. But is that all that Jesus means when he says here that the merciful are blessed and that they will receive mercy? Is it, is it simply a statement that if you don't give to people what they deserve, you won't get what you deserve? Is that, is that the full scope of what Jesus has to say here? And I think that begs the question of can we, can we square a narrow concept of mercy like that with, as Jesus followers, can we, can we reconcile, if that's all mercy is, that with the greater counsel of Jesus in the scriptures, moments like Jesus instructing his followers that you should forgive someone at least 490 times when they hurt you, Right? And moments like Paul telling us in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 that we're supposed to forgive other people in the same way that Christ has forgiven us. Or Jesus telling us in John 15 to love as he has loved us, which ultimately we know 
was him giving his life for us, and he compels us to love one another in the same way that he's loved us. And he makes it clear later in Matthew 5, we'll get to this uh, in a few weeks, he makes it clear that we're not, he's not just talking about loving the people who love us first or who are easy to love, but he's talking about loving our enemies, loving the people who hate us. And so there's this big picture that I think the scriptures give us that make a definition of mercy as simplistic as it just means you don't get what you deserve, far too narrow for what we're looking at. I'm convinced um, that Rich Mullins sang in one of his older songs that there's a wideness in God's mercy that I can't find in my own. And he, he borrowed that phrase in part from this old hymn that says this, there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea, there's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. I'm convinced that the concept of mercy, including what Jesus is calling us into here, into here in Matthew chapter 5, is far, far bigger, certainly than that small definition of it, but far bigger than any definition that we can come up with, with what he's asking for, what he's encouraging in us as a way of living when he says, the merciful are blessed, they will receive mercy. James, uh, I think he's calling us, just to clarify what I mean by that, I think he's calling us into God's life. I think this whole passage in Matthew 5 and then the fullness of the Sermon on the Mount, certainly, but these Beatitudes are his sort of opening salvo to call us into the life of God. This is what it looks like to live the way that God made you to live, the way that God is bringing life to the earth. It's not sufficient um, when we're doing that, when we're trying to figure out, okay, what does that mean? What does it look like to live God's life, to live the kind of life that God made us for? I don't think it's sufficient to just define words. And, uh, and in doing so, we sort of create mercy and all these other qualities or things that Jesus speaks about as tools that we pull out for certain aspects, certain moments in the Christian life. I think Jesus is calling us, I don't think it's explicit at other points, he's calling us to our whole life and our whole being, um, being lost and found again in the life and the ways of God as he reveals them in Jesus. There's a great book that I just started to read um, by a guy named James K. Smith, called You Are What You Love, and it's, it's, a, it's a really helpful um, guide for understanding ways that we tend to think that we're, we're primarily thinking creatures and that everything is about if we will just think and believe correctly, everything else will fall into line. And he makes the case that we're primarily desiring or loving creatures, and we have to understand that. Our mind is a big part of that, but we have to understand that to understand what Jesus is calling us into and to have the capacity to live that kind of life. One of the things he says early in the book is, so discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. So when Jesus includes here at the beginning of this sermon, um, and this is a sermon that discloses his, his way 
the way that he's calling us to live, when he includes in that at the beginning this specific call to mercy, I think we should be compelled to figure out how we're supposed to work that into our lives, not just to figure out how to define mercy and how to find a way to display it sometimes, but, but, but to work that notion of being a merciful being into our lives beyond it being just sort of something extra and to look for everything that he calls us to here in his life so that we want what he wants, that we desire what he desires, that we're hungry and thirsty for him and for the things that he's after. I think we, if we're serious about that, then every quality that we come to, we have to be careful that we don't just separate it out and go, Jesus was merciful. He wants us to be merciful. I know what that means. I'm nice all the time. But that it is driven by an understanding of what mercy looks like when it comes from God, what mercy looks like when it plays itself out in the life and the teaching of Jesus. So it's not just a matter of defining mercy, which I said, as I said, I think is really tough to do. I think we have to have a sense of, of what mercy looks like in the life of Jesus, what it looks like coming from the Father. Jesus had a way of illustrating things in parables uh, that instead of just giving definitions or theological teachings a lot of the time. And I think his appeal in Matthew 5 to mercy is captured as vividly as anywhere else in a parable that he tells that will be very familiar to you in Luke chapter 10. And it says this, Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, "'Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend.'" Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he, the teacher, said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. I want to walk through this familiar passage just a little bit because I think we get this sort of revelatory picture of mercy in this passage. The beginning of the passage, we have a lawyer is the way this translation uh, gives it. You may have Pharisee, you may have a teacher of the law, you may have any number of things, but this is a seminary professor, okay, for our context. This is someone whose job it was, when you see lawyer, it doesn't mean he's trying to get people out of jail or keep people out of jail. It meant that he dealt in the Old Testament law. He taught the scriptures as they had them at that time and helped people understand, this is what the law says, this is how you live. And so for him to walk up to Jesus, who is this sort of uh, troublemaker wandering through their region, and ask him a question like, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? 
chances are it's not a moment of spiritual exploration for the teacher of the law. Chances are this is a test sort of moment that he's looking to see what Jesus will say, not trying to figure out how to inherit eternal life. Nonetheless, um, instead of answering his question, and these moments happen quite a bit in the life of Jesus, instead of answering his question directly, Jesus asks him a question. Um, He says, you're the expert in the law. Why don't you tell me? And uh, the guy answers, this is normal, this kind of dialogue is normal in Jewish thought at this time. I read somewhere and it was attributed to three different people. I actually saw this, I've seen this in three different places. Um, But if you you were to ask a Jewish teacher of the law, why would you answer a question with a question? Uh, He would answer, why shouldn't I answer a question with a question? Um, and this is just a really common sort of occurrence uh, still, I think, in Jewish religious tradition to dialogue in this way. So Jesus answers with a question and says, you're the expert, tell me. So the, the teacher of the law answers, and he quotes uh, this passage, which you'll find in at least two other places in the Gospels, Jesus quoting this passage. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and his answer is not only legally accurate, but it's consistent with what Jesus is teaching. So we have a question, Jesus responds to that question with a question, and we have agreement on the answer. This is not a moment of controversy at this point. And so Jesus says, you've given the right answer. If you do this, you'll live. Um, And this guy asks a follow-up question. Luke tells us it's because he wants to justify himself. Lots of speculation as to what that might mean. Not really our point for today, so I won't get sidetracked with that. But he asks Jesus, okay, if that's the case, then who is my neighbor? Um, And Jesus responds to that, again, not with a direct answer, uh, this time not with a question, at least not immediately, but by telling a story. And that story is this, that there is a man, and if this man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and given all the other context of what's happening here, this is a Jewish man who's going from Jerusalem to to Jericho, and he's robbed, stripped, beaten, and left there uh, to die. So the translation here to the Jewish teacher of the law is, a God-fearing Jew is minding his own business, walking down the road, when some thugs jump him. And then in verses 31 and 32, Jesus continues and gives us two people who come by and come upon this guy laying on the side of the road and do nothing to help him, look the other way, actually walk by on the other side of the road. This is the one spot where I think a little bit of detail in what's happening here is helpful because the man asking the question is a lawyer, a teacher of the law, a Pharisee, and the examples that Jesus chooses are a priest and a Levite. If, if you don't know any different, you might think these are all Jewish, Jewish sort of religious, political, community positions of some sort uh, of power and influence. And you might think, well, the, uh, for a teacher of the law, a lawyer, a priest and a Levite, these guys probably all hang out together, right? A seminary professor, a preacher, and I'm not exactly sure, a worship leader. I don't know what we would consider a Levite in the modern context, but you, you would think, but in that context, it's not true. There's a lot of competition and distrust between those three positions of power in that time and place. 
So the setup here for Jesus is to present two guys for whom the lawyer is going to say, well, of course, a priest walked by on the other side of the road. Of course, a Levite was too busy to help someone in need. These are people who are part of this guy's camp. They're all Jews, but for whom it wouldn't shock him for them to be out of touch or to be living incorrectly. And so um, you have the priest who the Pharisees generally think they're too aloof all day talking theology and not um, following the right rituals. Uh, You have the Levite who they have, he he would have other condescending things uh, that he would think about. So literally part of what Jesus is doing here by using a priest and a Levite as his foils is when they see this guy half dead, for, for all they know he could be dead because they're walking on the other side of the road, um, they need to be, so the priests and the Levites probably both, need to be ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean on their way to the temple uh, so they can't touch a dead body. So they're more concerned with sort of religious ritual than they are with engaging in human laying on the side of the road. And so it's playing right into this guy's hands to say, this is what's wrong with these people religiously. Um, and, and he has him completely set up so that his expectation is almost certainly a guy like him is going to come along next and be the good guy. Instead, what Jesus does is this. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. Uh, I talked about this, I don't remember, five or six years ago was when I uh, preached on part of this passage, and I did quite a bit of research. I knew what I'd heard over the years, but I did quite a bit of research into this relationship between Jews and Samaritans, and it's difficult to convey uh, with accuracy the way that they felt about each other. But the easiest comparison from everything I read is the modern day feeling between Jews and Arabs is comparable to how Jews and Samaritans would have felt at that time. Uh, So when he's talking to a Jewish teacher of the law about a Jewish man who's been left for dead on the side of the road, and all of a sudden we have two Jewish bad guys who ignored him, and all of a sudden a good guy comes along and it is a member of that other group it's comparable to saying uh, to a New Yorker or someone who lives in Manhattan or someone who lives in Israel or maybe even for one of us saying, so then a member of the Bin Laden family comes along and sees the guy laying on the side of the road. It would have done that to his brain, whatever that did in your brain to imagine that. We've done something like that, uh, but probably more dramatic than that. Um, We have some other context scripturally for the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. In John 4, when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, which we're told is a real no-no, that's a Jewish-Samaritan interaction uh, that was shocking to the people. And uh, and then in Luke 9, do I have that up here? I think I forgot to put that up here. But in Luke 9, we have a, a reference a little before this that Jesus sent on his way into Samaria, he sent some of his followers to prepare the way for him. He's already been rejected by the Jewish communities. He's going into Samaria, and the Samaritans also reject him. Uh, So it's not as though Jesus is Samaritan, or that he's coming from that perspective, or he would have any reason to be perceived as sympathetic to the Samaritans. He's making a point here by using a Samaritan at this point 
uh, in this role in the story. So try to put yourselves in the shoes of the Pharisee, of the lawyer, um, and imagine the first two characters are folks you don't like, but ultimately on your team. And finally, the good person comes along, and it's someone you hate, someone you despise, and, and you think nothing good of them or all of their people. Um, that's, that gives you a sense of what happens here. It's that stark. So in the story, what does the Samaritan do? Jesus says he was moved with pity. He bandaged his wounds. He took care of him, put him on his own animal, brought it, which meant he probably walked the rest of the way, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And when he had to move on, he gave money to the innkeeper and said, do whatever he needs. And if he needs more than what this will pay for, I'll come back and I'll pay you the rest. It's extravagant. It's, it's beyond um, what, if, if, if I see an accident, uh, I'm probably going to call 911. And if I'm in a good place, I might even stop to help. I'm unlikely uh, to follow that person to the hospital, pay for their medical bills and say, whatever else happens, but put it on my credit card, Right. This is, this is extravagant response. So the reviled guy is the one who shows that kind of compassion in the story. But there's one more twist in this that I think we, we more often than not miss. And before we read again the last part of the story, I want to remind you what the expert in the law asked that prompted this story. He asked the question, who is my neighbor? So he's been told... In response to the question, how do I inherit eternal life? Love God and love your neighbor. And his, his answer to that is, okay, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? And so traditionally, we, we interpret this parable of the Good Samaritan to mean something like this. The way that we traditionally interpret it, this is, this is what the reading would be. Your neighbor is the guy who's bleeding on the side of the road, Right? He asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells this story. So the answer is the guy who's bleeding on the side of the road. But if that's Jesus' answer, wouldn't it have made more sense for the Samaritan to be bleeding on the side of the road and for a Jewish teacher of the law to stop and help him if the real point of Jesus' story here is to answer the question, who is my neighbor, by saying, it's who, whoever needs help, even if it's a Samaritan. If, if that is the answer to the question, that's how the story would have been told. That's not how Jesus tells the story. Look at what, what Jesus asks after he tells the story. Which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? He doesn't ask which one of these is your neighbor. Um, he doesn't ask... Uh, He doesn't answer directly the question that the man asks. He asks, which one of these was a neighbor to the man? And so our traditional way of looking at at this assumes that the man asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers, well, the bleeding guy on the side of the road that the religious folks wouldn't touch, who's also your cultural enemy. That's your neighbor. And we assume that he's answering as, as though it comes from the perspective of the guys on the road asking themselves, is this guy who's half dead here my neighbor, and do I have to love him? The way that we usually interpret it, that's the way that the story would play out. But that's not what actually happens. Jesus tells this story, and he flips the script and re-asks a question from the perspective of the guy laying on the ground bleeding. 
who is his neighbor. The teacher of the law has asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story and then says, I don't know, who is his neighbor? He has put the teacher of the law in the position of the bleeding man laying on the ground, not of someone passing by the bleeding man deciding, is this my neighbor or not? He's put the lawyer as, I don't know, you're laying on the ground bleeding half to death. Here's what happens. Who's your neighbor? It's a different thing than probably this guy uh, expected. And I think it's different um, than the way that we typically read it. So instead of it being a story where Jesus is asking, if you're walking along and seeing a bleeding guy on the ground that you don't like, is he your neighbor? It's not really what he's doing here. He's asking, you want to know who your neighbor is? Suppose you're almost murdered and are left for dead. Two guys pass by you, two religious guys pass by you and leave you, and then this guy you hate comes by and takes care of you. Which one of those is your neighbor? That's what Jesus has done here. In doing that, he doesn't just define neighbor. He creates a neighbor in the story that this guy doesn't expect. And that neighbor that he creates reveals to us, I think, the nature and the reality of mercy by making the person who's asking for eternal life, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? The recipient of mercy. He's asked the question, what do we have to do to earn this? What do I have to do to inherit God's life, eternal life? And instead of Jesus telling a story or giving a direct answer that gives him things to do, Jesus leaves him bleeding on the ground and lets him receive mercy. And that ultimately is Jesus' answer, not just to who is my neighbor, but to what must I do to inherit eternal life. You're the guy bleeding on the ground. How, how, how do these people respond to you? Which one of them loves you? Which one of them shows you mercy? He's compelling the Pharisee to live a life of mercy, to live a life of love, yes. So what we've always assumed is he's trying to instruct that guy and ultimately us, this is what it looks like to love your neighbor. True enough, it's not false to say that that's available in this story. But the way that the story is told, he is only able to understand and therefore give love and mercy after he has received it, after he's been put in the position of understanding what it means to be left half dead and have a man come along and take care of him, bring him back to life and see to it that his needs are met. Only in receiving mercy is this guy or us going to be in a position of being compelled or able to give mercy. So Jesus doesn't just flip the last question, who's my neighbor? He ultimately flips the first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? By illustrating that we receive this life as a gift of mercy from, in the story, a Samaritan, but ultimately from the one who comes upon us when we're bleeding and half dead on the side of the road and saves us. I think that opens us up, that opens up to us the crux of what Jesus is after here in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. 
See, if the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, if we see it as just a moral instruction to be kind even to the people that we find it hard to be kind to or who hate us, I think we get something true out of that. That's consistent with what the New Testament teaches, with who Jesus is and what he demonstrates to us. But I do think we miss the wider revelation here because in Jesus, the ultimate message is never behave better. It's never what Jesus is doing. He is never telling people, just get it together and act right. And you'll get what I have for you. The message is always a proclamation of good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. You're invited. Come be a part of it. That's always what Jesus is doing. So in this case, the only way through the impossibility, if the answer to how do I, how do I receive, inherit eternal life is you have to completely love God and then love everybody. And when I say love everybody, I mean in this bizarre way that you can't even conceive of the way that you would love someone like this story. That's impossible. That can't be done. It, it is beyond the capacities of us as humans to consistently live in that way. The only way through that impossibility of loving that extravagantly without limits and living this holy sacrificial life, the only way through that impossible requirement to inherit eternal life which is about more than heaven. It's about experiencing the full life of God that never ends, includes heaven. It's more than that. Is to realize that you yourself have first received the kind of mercy and love you're being called to give to others. You don't get it because you manufacture that way of life. You're able to enter into that life because you were lying bleeding on the road and Jesus came along. It's not an act of your own great virtue. It's not an act of condescending pity for someone who is beneath you. And it is actually an expression of weakness to live a life of mercy overall. But it's the kind of weakness that we were made to live into. It's the kind of death that we were made to enter into to give our lives up so that we might find our lives and find real strength. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You read this passage over the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's sort of amazing to see God in the role of the Samaritan coming along on the road and finding us half dead. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. He says in Romans chapter 5, while you were still sinning, Jesus died for you. This is what mercy looks like. It is far bigger and far wider than just not getting what you deserve. When Jesus calls you to mercy, when he says those who are merciful are, are blessed and they'll receive mercy, he's not telling you to earn mercy. You're not loving to earn love. You're not showing mercy to earn mercy. You're raised into a life of mercy like the Samaritan reveals. This is what a life of mercy looks like because you yourself are the one who has been rescued from the battering of life and the nearness of death. And that mercy is not just whatever I think is kind or compassionate. That's not, that's not all Jesus is after. This is not a simple, again, instruction to just let me figure out what's kind and compassionate here in this moment. It's something far bigger than that. It originates in God. It comes to us through Jesus. And then, yes, it's poured into the world through our lives, but our lives of mercy, if we live them the way that Jesus calls us to, are not just that generalized kindness, isolated from the repentance that the scriptures tell us kindness draws us toward. They're not, our lives of mercy are not separated from the way God's mercy invites us to die to ourselves and come alive into him and his kingdom, which reorders our lives and our way of living. Our lives of mercy are reflecting in the world the very mercy that God has given us when he rescues us, as Paul says here, from the course of the world which is not real life and is not his way. The call to come and die at the cross is part of this. Part of mercy is the call to come and die. It's putting the cross in front of us. That's ever-present, but the blessing is here too. For those who are merciful, receive mercy. When you realize that you're raised into a life of God's mercy, and you live into that. You have passed out of this cold reality of the world where you can't count on mercy. And you've come into the eternal reality of the kingdom of God where you're compelled and you're free to be merciful without fear of what the outcome of that is going to be because God for those who have received his mercy and are then giving it away, with him, the outcome is always mercy. And you can live freely into that life. Let's pray. Father, uh, we want to hear the words of Jesus. We want to live as Jesus calls us to live. We want to embody the life that he made us for. And I pray that in this moment, when Jesus says, the merciful are blessed, and we say, yeah, it's, my, it's, the, it's the goal of my life to be among the people whom Jesus has called, among the people who receive mercy, that we will begin with that understanding that we sang about earlier uh, of what mercy looks like. Mercy died to set us free. That's what mercy looks like, is Jesus laid down his life for us when we couldn't save ourselves. And so the invitation into that is not something, it's not 
this insurmountable standard of how to live and be a really nice person. I pray that you would, um, this week, in whatever way you need to do it, I pray that you would allow each of us to see ourselves through the eyes of the one who is bleeding half dead on the side of the road in the story that Jesus told. And allow us to see our neighbor and allow us to see you as the one who's come along to take care of us, extravagantly take care of us and rescue us. And let that settle into us so that this understanding of what it means to be merciful in the way that Jesus says is blessed makes sense to us and becomes a part of who we are because the life of Jesus is working itself out in us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.